The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. But uh, it was about 28 years ago that I was at the end of my rope, as Matt said, and I was 38 years old and I found myself sitting in a jail cell and I was almost dead. I was absolutely spiritually dead from 38 years of atheism. Uh, I was emotionally dead and caught up in a childish emotional state, a very immature state from 20 plus years of drug use. And both of those combinations pretty much left me physically dead. Now, through that arrest, I began to do the hard work of getting sober, and believe me, it was hard. And I began to grow because I was working for the first time with a sound mind instead of a deluded mind. And five years later, we moved from uh, Colorado, where I was arrested, to Modesto, California, in the Central Valley, about five hours north. And it was there that Jesus found me. I was saved. And in a moment, everything changed inside of me spiritually because the dynamic of the Holy Spirit entered my life. And I was stunned by it. I didn't see it coming. I'm going to share that. I knew something had changed inside, but I hadn't changed because I was still caught up in the emotional state I'd been from what I'd believed, what I'd thought for 38 years in my life. And that didn't change in that instance. But I was on fire. And so I began obviously asking questions because I knew something had happened, but I couldn't explain this Jesus thing that I'd argued against my whole life. And as I began questioning pastors, explain this to me, I began to build relationships. And through those relationships, serving opportunities began to open very quickly. And I got in the choir, and I started a home group, a community group, as you would call it. And I began to grow in the Lord in ways I never would have dreamed. And what amazingly happened was two years later, after my salvation, I was asked to interview for a job as a pastor. It was a director. I had to be trained into a pastor. But a pastoral ministry for college kids at our church. And it's about a 3,000-person church each weekend. I was sure they wouldn't have me, as you can imagine, hearing my story. But I interviewed, and after telling them my story, I was hired. I was stunned. But what was really amazing, they then began to pour into me at a whole new level. And 19 years ago, yesterday, I became a licensed pastor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a story of God's grace in my life. Because you see, obviously, I became a pastor way too early in my walk by any human standards. And it could have been an error by man or possibly God's greater plan. I prefer that latter explanation. But either way, I knew I needed grace to become a pastor, much less a good one. How could I survive in this world of uh, pastors and seminary-trained men and women of God knowing who I was? I didn't have anything in me apart from Jesus that qualified me as a pastor. So what did I do? I began a vigilant study of this book and every book I could get my hands on that had grace in the title. Because I knew I'd need that power called grace in my life to even begin to survive in this very strange location I found myself in called the local church. And all of this is because I knew then and I still know now that I far fall so far short of God's perfection in and of myself. I need grace. And I pray today as I preach that you might grasp the power of this grace at a whole new level today. And today, when it comes to grace, I agree with most theologians who claim that grace is the defining principle that sets Christianity apart from all other religions that have something to do with working your way into God's 
God's uh, mercy. And it's grace that makes us be a people of a relationship rather than religion. And we aren't a religion, we're a relationship. And while Christ is at the very source of grace and the very center of it, he never uttered the word, at least that we know of. But he did live it out and he gave it to us as his gift. And that is the definition of grace, God's gift of unmerited favor to his children that would just come to faith and believe. The gift of salvation and a potential abundant life to every believer that can never be earned or deserved. There's no works related to it. I remember so well the first time I heard this. I was quite used in 38 years of angry atheism to talking and arguing with stupid Christians. And I was in a car uh, training a salesman who was an elderly gentleman and we were sitting up in the valley in Merced, California and he began to ask me if I had any understanding that God wanted to pour out this unmerited favor on my life. And it was a particularly important conversation because the cracks were beginning in my spiritual armor and I argued with him that day. I said, that's impossible. And he kept telling me the scriptures and how it really was and I began, that stuck with me. And so... Friends, as I get back to this lesson on grace and away from my story, I, the one thing I hope you're going to take with you today from my lesson is that every Christian or every non-believer even is going to grow spiritually as you come to understand and apply this word grace to your life. And it's my belief that we live in a very emotionally immature world, and I'm going to touch on that in a moment, but I believe it's because we don't desire grace, many of us, we're closed to our ways instead of God's, or that we simply don't understand it. So as you come to understand it, how are you going to see it reflected in your lives? I believe it will be, and this is scriptural, that you will find intimacy in your relationships. Let's define intimacy. Intimacy is when we can drop our masks, drop our pretense, the fraud that I once was as a drug addict, drop it all, and we begin to be able to be me with you, or me with God, which is much more important. And you will find, as you will come to apply and understand this word grace, that you're drawn into an intimacy with Jesus first, and then just as he teaches, that's going to overflow out of you through the Holy Spirit in your ability to be intimate with other people, most important, your families. So let's begin this lesson on grace by taking a historical look at grace in the context of the time it was introduced. First, God does not change. He's always been gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And he's always made a way for us to have an intimate relationship with him. Through Moses, he established the law. And this was a sacrificial system where everybody had to sacrifice every time they sinned or broke one of the laws, one of the rules. And the scary thing is, is that it was for known sins as well as unknown sins. Can you imagine? Beyond that, this brutal system said that when you did it, you had to sacrifice, in most cases, an animal. Brutal by today's standards, if you literally consider it. So by those sacrifices, you were going to have a clear path to an intimate relationship with God, which is his deepest desire for any of us, to know him. And this is eternal life, to know the Father and Jesus whom he sent. And I often ponder as I think about how thankful I am to live in the age of grace versus the law, how many animals I would have had to have owned to live in that day and age. It would have been a big old herd, folks. 
So Jesus came full of grace and truth and changed the way we can approach and have intimacy with God. And his greatest instruction to us is to allow this grace of intimacy with him to overflow in how we love others. This grace uh, he offered said we no longer had to sacrifice, hallelujah, because he was our sacrifice once and for all. All by his grace and all we need to do is accept the gift through faith. So if you consider world history, it's easy to begin to comprehend how the Jewish believers held on to their cultural dynamic of the law. It, they really struggled with this thing called grace. Grace is a scandal. Grace was unbelievable. It was a mystery. It was a big idea, one of my mentors said. It, they couldn't get their arms around it. So God inspired the writers of the New Testament to explain this mystery to us. So let's look at the word in Scripture. How important is it? Well, it's 128 times in the New Testament. Guess how many times the word sin is in the New Testament? 127. One less. Think God intended that? Because grace trumps sin. I want to ask you, in your walk, which do you focus more on? Because your answer to that question may clearly say how much you understand or do not understand about God's grace. Because the law keeps us focused on our sin and our failures, and we can't do it. We can't do it, no matter how hard we try. Where grace gives us the power to focus our gaze upon heaven, where Jesus is sit, sit, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for all our sins. And that offers us the power to come clean and be intimate and be transformed. Do you know that this word is so important that the Apostle Paul began and ended every one of his epistles with the word? In his final letter to us of his life, Paul closed his second letter to Timothy with these words, grace be with you. The Apostle Peter, in his final words to us in the Bible, in 2 Peter, exhorted us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Perhaps the most important for the train of thought I'm on is the final words of the entire Bible, Revelation 22, 21, that says the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Grace. Grace. God could have chosen all kinds of words, love being the one I think. I understand love. I want love. Grace is a mystery. He knew we understood love more than we understood the scandal of his grace, that we don't have to do anything to earn and deserve his relationship. So this grace is amazing. It's a mystery. And as we shall see, for, the, for every one of us, in the end, it's going to be only grace that matters. So we've defined grace as an undeserved gift. We've looked at it as its presence in Scripture. So let's look at three ways we hope to understand it as we grow on our spiritual journeys together. First, grace gives birth to our spiritual journey. This has been Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Tells us that it is by grace we are saved through faith that is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, so that none of us can ever claim to have earned it because God knows we boast about it and think we earned right, which is every other religion on the planet Earth, amen? So, friends, we must all be saved. Jesus, in John 3, calls it to be born again. Jesus said that we're all born once to our mothers, but we must be reborn spiritually if we're ever going to see the kingdom of God. Each of us, before we were born again, were hopelessly lost, spiritually dead, living in this law-based, performance-based world where we just couldn't 
make it. We couldn't live up to the standard, and we knew we were failing. But it is by grace we were saved through faith. And Romans 1.18 tells us that this gift offers us the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe. The Greek word for power there is dunamis. And friends, I worked two years on the Alaska pipeline as a dynamite driller, and I loved blowing up things. And, and one stick of dynamite is a powerful force. It isn't a common July 4th fireworks. And, and so I ask you, when you were born again, did you feel the dunamis power of God through the Holy Spirit come into your life? When you watch a July 4th fireworks day after tomorrow, and you hear the boom, consider God's power in comparison. It's unbelievably more powerful. And our spiritual journey begins at that moment. For me, it was not more than a couple weeks after that man in Merced told me about this unmerited favor that God wanted to shower on me. I was 42 years of age. I remember the day so well. I was sitting in church. At the end of a sermon, the pastor offered the good news for, of salvation to me, and I was sitting there. I had no idea what was happening, but I felt something inside of me being drawn by this love or, or attractive force, and I it pulled me into a decision I obviously never thought I would make. It was a dynamic spiritual moment, and as soon as it occurred, I felt an excitement inside of me. I wanted to run up and tell the pastor, but I couldn't get to him because it's a big church, so I told my wife. And it would be a week before I'd get to the pastor to tell him, and he encouraged me how excited he was for me that began my journey at the church. But remember, that all had to be God's grace in my life because I'd been an atheist and a doubter my whole life, and I was 42. And it fits perfectly into Jesus' story with Nicodemus when he said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, how can that be? And Jesus then told him, but he went on to do a, an analogy of the wind. And he said, Nicodemus, you not, should not be surprised at me telling you you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it came from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Friends, I was born again that day, and I had no idea where it came from. I couldn't have seen it coming. I certainly had no plan for it. And I'll guarantee you, as strange as that was, I had no idea where he would take me in my life, to my entire family being saved, to me standing here before you preaching God's word. That is insanity and the power of the Spirit in one man's life, just as Jesus explained it would be. All from the fullness of his grace, one blessing after another. So in review, grace is an undeserved gift of God. It's a mystery. And at some level, once we're saved, we must pursue it because it's a crazy idea that we're, we're, we're forgiven completely, justified by faith alone so that we can have a, a righteous relationship with God himself, even in the midst of our unrighteousness, which will never end until we get to heaven. So it is grace that gives birth to our spiritual journey. But it also is grace that transforms us on our spiritual journey. The Greek word for transformed is metamorpho, dynamic power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives to what, that transforms us from a caterpillar to a butterfly. And believe me, I had a lot of emotional lies and immaturity floating around in this sick head from what I believed prior to my salvation. I had 
I had to if I was even going to be a success because I was a pastor. But it was also a desire to know God. And the only place I knew I could make up all kinds of ideas. I did for a long time. But this was the truth of how I found out who God was. And I began to study it with all my heart. If you have a Bible, I hope you turn to Hebrews 4. We're going to look at that in a minute, 4.12. But before we get there and how this spirit will transform us, as Matt introduced, God has blown me into where over a decade I've been the pastor of recovering counseling at my church. And my role is to come alongside people who struggle like I still struggle at times, but I don't struggle like I used to. So I often say I'm in the midlife crisis business. And that can happen many times at any age to all of us. My first midlife crisis was eighth grade. But my role today, <laughs> true story, um, cutter. Depressed, suicidal, that was me. If you struggle with those things, there's hope in the gospel and the grace of God. But um, my role today is to help hurting people, to come alongside them, the paraclete, like the Holy Spirit, come alongside us. And in this role, it's my experience that so few understand what I'm teaching today about grace, and that is the power transformed. They find themselves caught up in the guilt and failure cycle of the law that keeps them stuck just where the enemy wants them. And that's why I share this message wherever I go. You hear me preach next time? I'm going to preach on grace because it is the power of God. It is the way to be transformed, and you're not going to do it on your own living under the law. So all of this in my role, a lack of understanding of grace, is where I see the failure with sin and its consequences that flows out into our human relationships and breaks the intimacy with God and with those we love. And while it's sadly true that many aren't to the point of desiring to change, and God is a gentleman, he isn't going to force you to change, you're going to just get miserable and miserable and miserable, like I did, until you finally go, okay, I give up, it isn't working, now God, I'm ready. And it's still my experience that many people, once they get there, they can't beat the law and their ongoing sin that isn't instantly changed to perfection because it never will be. So we're going to get to the good news in a moment. But I've got to share the bad news as I see it because the truth is the light of the good news is only the light of good news if it shines into something dark. Does that make sense? So, so what's the darkness of our culture? This is just one man's point of view, but I believe it's true that we live, I know it's true that we live in the wealthiest, freest culture ever in the history of mankind. And with that wealth and freedom comes an incredible risk that most don't even think about very much. I believe it to be that one of the reasons Jesus said it's harder for a, easier for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? He said that in Matthew 19, but I want to tell you, if you're not aware of what I'm about to say, I hope you will take it with you today, because to not be aware of a spiritual battle dooms you to failure, because Satan is smarter than you are, and he will use it. So our flesh, combined with our wealth and freedom, produces an entitlement culture that we're all battling. It is a spiritual battle, and it looks like this. Our flesh comes to believe that we deserve or have earned all kinds of things that are not ours apart from God's grace to us. The truth tells us that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, James 1.17. When we forget that and think we've earned it, we eliminate the blessings of God because we think we deserve it. And friends, here's how you can tell if, we, if you get this. 
If we realize they're gifts from God, then we give him the glory. To him alone be the glory. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. So, friends, we live in such an entitlement society. I do, you do. But let me just cover a couple here as you examine yourself and say, how do I think I'm entitled to things? One that's very timely where I live, because we just had a heat stroke up in Modesto that was over between 105 and 111 every day for over a week. And one of the things that we feel entitled to in our culture, and it's true down here where it's always sunny and warm, is air conditioning. How do you look at air conditioning in your life? Don't we just believe we have a right to be protected from the heat? It just comes naturally to us to think that we've earned that or deserved it. Well, I have been blessed to travel to India five times. I'll be back there in November, and we have a missionary there that is a very dear friend of mine, and I talk to him every week via Skype. So this week, I, last week, I said, hey, Pasong, what do you think about air conditioning? And he just looked at me, grinned, sweated, and endured. Because it's much hotter in India than it is even in the Central Valley of California. It was 118 in New Delhi in April with oppressive humidity. If you've ever been there, it is oppressive. And these, there's over one billion people with a B, all God created, who live in India, and they have no concept of the blessing of God's grace called air conditioning. <laughs> How often do we give God the thanks for air conditioning? That's one example. But I want to tell you the one that I see the most, and I battle the most, quite honestly, but where do we find that we're entitled to a life where people do not hurt us? Think about that. Where do we get it? It's not from God. Jesus himself told us in John 16, in this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He knew well that no trouble is more profoundly impactful than people. So what does God say in his word we're to do when people hurt us if we're emotionally mature rather than immature? Romans 5, there's many scriptures, but I like Romans 5.3 as a reminder to myself. It says glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. We hang in there. We work through the problems with the people. Perseverance makes us better people, develops our character to be more like Christ. And then that character change, transformation, more to, mo more to metamorphosized, gives us hope. And what's the hope? God is real. The Holy Spirit really does dwell in me. I'm not responding immaturely like I used to. I'm actually growing into a model of healthy human behavior and how people hurt me and I respond. Literally makes us believe God's true and the hope of heaven is true. And that he is actually able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to make us people of character and hope. And that means we have the power of the Holy Spirit to be emotionally mature if we choose it. And God gives us these healthy ways to deal with it. And God's word is clear. I love Galatians 5. You ought to memorize it in my opinion. But when trouble hits and people treat us poorly, we believe that we have a right to be upset. The Holy Spirit says, it's not me creating those quarrels because you did not get what you want, James tells us. It's not me creating the discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfishness, dissensions, factions, envy, and the like. 
God was so clear, he said, this is obvious, my children, these acts of the sinful nature. That is spiritual immaturity to respond in those ways. I instead gave you the power of the Holy Spirit, which is love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. So what is God saying to us when we're hurt by people? And let me be clear, I totally believe in healthy boundaries. But I also know in this world there is a huge entitlement we experience when people hurt us, especially our families. I don't speak lightly for God, but I speak powerfully about what his word says. So here's what God is saying to us when people hurt us. He says, I love you. I have a purpose in this. It's a purpose to grow you so that you become a better person. Keep your mind set on me and things above, Colossians 3. Keep your mind set on me and find life and peace, Romans 8. Get rid of all the bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and every form of malice. Forgive them just as I forgave you. And as we noted, God is saying he wants to do that to develop your character. So I ask you today, where do you feel entitled? How about your work? My boss. That jerk, or jerk ass, um, <laughs> they ought to treat me better. I, I'm going to quit on them. Well, read your Bible. It says to obey them, respect and fear them with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ, Ephesians 6. Bottom line, I believe with all my heart that every employer in the world ought to say, Christian, apply for a job. Woohoo! They're going to make me money. They're going to treat me well. They're going to they're work a Christian work ethic for me. And they're not going to cause me trouble because they're going to respond the way Jesus told them to. But let me give you the most important of all, your spouse. If you're married here, going into a marriage series. But I counsel the marriages of our community. If that isn't a weird thing given where I came from. But I am... I am passionate for marriage and family because what God has done in my family, folks, if you've seen that change, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment, you would be passionate for marriage and family too. And this one reality of entitlement brings about almost all your challenges, yet people don't come into my marriage counseling office for me to go, you know, let me just diagnose. You've got an unbiblical entitlement complex. They'd be out the door. So what is so often true is that when our spouse mistreats us, we respond in our flesh and we find enablers in our culture saying, you have a right to be angry at them. I have a little saying in my counseling office, you, you can either be right or you can be married. <laughs> Too often we see this literally taking hold as the demons get a hold of our immature uh, emotional well-being and we claim that we have an, a right to be entitled to actually, I don't love them anymore. I've fallen out of love. We then have an entitlement culture that says it's okay to go out and sue them for separation and divorce. All ignoring the damage that does to God, his church, our culture, and most importantly, our children. And to do so is to ignore what God has already told you, that marriage trials are not about your happiness, they're about your holiness. I love Walt Disney, but when he said you were going to be happily ever after, he told you a lie. It's not what marriage is about. Yet we believe it, and we go into it with this entitlement culture. You're, you're there to make me happy. No, they're there to help you grow, because they're going to treat you poorly. 
and you them. So what does God's grace tell you about how we view our spouse? The Bible tells us he who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord, Proverbs 18.22. We've already defined God's favor as his grace pouring out on our life. So I ask you, do you view your spouse through the lens of God's grace as a gift from God himself to you? I'll guarantee you if you change that train of thought, you will have a foundation for a great marriage. So let me get back to the truth about entitlement. As soon as you begin to believe you earned or deserved something, you cut off the lens and the flow of God's grace into your life because you don't even consider him. You don't give him the glory that he deserves, and you're sitting around going, I earned it or deserved it, and it messes up your relationship with him and with the people you love. So, um, my, friend, my prayer today is that we'd all change this stinking thinking because we're transformed by the renewing of our mind that keeps us emotionally immature and never benefits any of our relationships. And I speak from experience because 27 years ago, when I was arrested, all my relationships were hanging by a, a thread that wasn't even as strong as a spider web. My wife was furious, she, as she should have been. She wouldn't speak to me. I didn't even know how to talk because of the mess I created. My kids were living in that tense dynamic, being messed up in their souls. And it's only God's grace, unearned, undeserved, that today my favorite thing to do is spend time with my wife. That's a miracle of God's grace. It's only a miracle of God's grace that my other younger son, redhead, same color as Tyler, he's leading worship right this minute at my church in Modesto, California. At the same time, my other son's leading worship right here in Story City. And those boys are married to godly women who love Jesus. That's a miracle of God's grace, especially given where I came from. And the weird thing is, the Bible says, he satisfies your desire with good things in Psalm 103. When I came to Christ, I wouldn't have even wanted my boys to be pastors. I wouldn't have. God changed my heart. And today I get all the value of what really has meaning in life. So... Let's get to Hebrews 4 in verse 12 and the good news. This scripture is one of the great barometers of my understanding. And it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, sinew and ligament. It judges the hot thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Not everything will be laid bare before him who we must give account. One day you will be intimate with God by his choice. You will no longer be able to hide him. And Depending on how you view the law versus grace, that either scares you or excites you. And for me, if I don't get study on grace and believe on grace, I'm, I'm starting to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. But the word goes on to say, don't be afraid of me because I sent a high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. And he came and he sympathizes with your weaknesses. He wants you to come to them. He understands. He knows that you're but dust. And the scripture goes on to say, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace, unmerited favor in our time of need, which is, for me, every hour. And to understand grace is to live free of guilt and its controlling nature. Do you know that guilt is an old covenant word? 188 times in Scripture, 171 in the Old Testament. Of the 17 times it's even noted in the New Testament, all but one speak to pre-salvation guilt. 
Do your own study on the one that isn't. So to understand grace is to live in the freedom of intimacy with God without the guilt and shame of our failures blocking the path. So three ways, and I'm almost done here, you're going to know if you're experiencing grace. Grace always produces humility. The Bible itself says, but he gives us more unmerited favor. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That scripture is actually presuming that anybody who's saved is humbled by the gift. And he's pouring it out to us. The Greek word humility comes from the uh, the word humility comes from the Greek word humus, which means good soil. The great Scottish theologian Andrew Murray says that humility is the soil out of which all Christian character grows. So it always produces humility. It always produces gratitude. And certainly when we receive a gift of any size, we're grateful. We're excited. And we, are, we become a beacon of light instead of a beacon of darkness thinking we're entitled to something. We keep our focus on the grace giver and the gift instead of what we earned or deserve. So the more you understand God's grace, the more your countenance will experience and shine the yes of our God, who is a yes God, not the no God that is, wants to beat you up over your sin. Finally, grace will always produce freedom if we're living in it. The gift of the Holy Spirit 2 Corinthians 3, 17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And this is another mystery. If we are walking and approaching with confidence, we begin to share our weaknesses with God. We quit hiding them, and he meets us where we are, and he begins to heal our weaknesses, and we find ourselves being sanctified, which is our purpose for our time left on earth. So I want to invite the band back out. As I close with the final point, because grace saves us and it empowers the Holy Spirit to begin in our life. Grace is God's gift to transform us so that we can be more like the image of his son, Romans 8. But it will, no doubt, you want to understand the mystery of grace and appreciate grace, wait till you breathe your final breath. Because one day we're all going to die and we're going to go up and we're going to meet Jesus and all will be stripped away and we will be intimate with him. And he's going to say, I understood the whole time. Did you live in my grace? Did you let it transform your life? Come in. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with just a few things. I get it. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Let me pray. Lord, um, we're about to celebrate the freedom of our country and the firework power of, of, of TNT, Lord, but it's nothing compared to your freedom produced by the dynamic power of your Holy Spirit, which enters us the moment we come to faith. There's no works. We don't have to live up to a standard because we can't live up to a standard, but living in and through you, we grow. We become more like you. Our families become healthy and live their lives to serve you, knowing eternity awaits and that we're just passing through. Thank you, Jesus, for your amazing, mysterious, and awesome grace. In Jesus' name.